name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. These podcasts are the interviews from our live shows that we do at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. This episode uh, features our guest, Winona LaDuke, who is an internationally renowned activist working on issues of sustainable development, renewable energy, and food systems. She lives and works on the White Earth Reservation in northern Minnesota and is a two-time vice presidential candidate with Ralph Nader for the Green Party. And hopefully she isn't the last vice presidential candidate we have. So in just in case Mike Pence or Tim Kaine are listening, we'd love to have you on the show, but we understand if you're busy. We also have a media sponsor this season, uh, MinPost, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan media organization that provides high-quality news to the people of Minnesota. You can go to them at www.minnpost.com. We also have other shows this season that we'd love to see you at. So if you'd like to see one of these interviews in person, you can go to our website at www.t2p2.net. We have a bunch of different shows with a lot of fun guests this season, and we'd love to see you there. Otherwise, uh, I hope you enjoy this interview. This is so good. We might not get to the show. There's so much applause. That's that. I really How fun. How fun. That, so thank you so much for being here, and particularly thank you for being we, – we initially started talking about you being on the show several weeks ago, and now it's, it's like we planned that there would be all of this news around uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline and everything to just hit perfectly – what, not that I arranged that any judge's orders would happen this weekend or anything, but it worked out really well. So thank you so much for... Yeah, I mean, you guys are so much nicer than the governor of North Dakota. <laughs> oh, God. So it is. Uh, so let's talk. Let's try and set the stage with this a little bit. So uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline, wh- can you just give us sort of the snapshot of where are we with that... Uh, fight right now? Uh, where are we? Because it seems like it's been changing hour by hour. Actually, I had somebody ask me backstage, like, has anything happened since this morning on that? And I, I said, I haven't had time to look. So um, I do research for the shows, though. Uh, but yeah, so can you give us sort of an overview of where we are right now? So let me just start with saying, you know, nobody was really watching this pipeline because I kind of feel like nobody watches what happens in North Dakota. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's out there. We're hoping things go well for them. <laughs> Pretty much, you know, it's like out there. So, well, I mean, do, can you even take a train there or a car? Well, or if you can get one at 3 a.m. or 3, you know, 3 a.m. going either way from, from Detroit Lakes. Okay, yeah. Super handy, that yeah. train system. Yeah. The 3 a.m. Yeah. train to, I read that play in high school, the 3 a.m. train <laughs> to much, Fargo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like horrible. I mean, so, you know, I, I have to say that I've, I've been for many years kind of like harping on that nobody pays attention to North Dakota. The ACLU has like one person for two states. Right. You got it. You know, Sierra Club has like one person in North Dakota. That's a lot of territory. So things don't go well because everybody wants to hang out in the Twin Cities because you got cappuccinos and shit like that. You know? <laughs> I don't know why, you know. So anyway, things have been going. I, I feel like I should apologize for us being an interesting place. But, um, <laughs> but I'm the, the life of leisure is doing y'all well. But, you know, in the, in, the meantime, in the meantime, let's just be honest. You know, things have not been going well. So. Up in northern Minnesota, a lot of you have been working with us. And, you know, I mean, as you know, we've, we've been battling away these stupid Enbridge lines in the north. Uh, Sandpiper 1, Line 3. And then, you know, so we was battling away all these years and all this time. And because of people like you and me, things were not working out so well for Enbridge. You all notice this, right? So they announced here uh, a few weeks ago, they totally surprised the heck out of us, announced that they're going to move over to Dakota Access. I told them, I had a meeting with them. I said, I feel like you guys are cheating on us. 
Because we should say there was the sandpiper pipe. Right, the sandpiper was the proposal from from uh, which is for fracked oil from from North Dakota, and they were going to take it to Superior. And it was the only route. It was they told us that the Clearbrook to Superior route was the only possible route they could use. And that one would have gone straight across uh, a lot uh, of the state of uh, Minnesota, uh, a, a lot of our territory, and a lot of a, a lot, lot of, of our territory. territory. So yeah. we don't like that one. We fought them for all these years, and one day I opened up. Well, actually, I was like. You know, driving home one night, and someone said that they moved to North Dakota. So we go out there. We weren't paying attention to that line, and all of a sudden, we find out about it. So they went through this whole process, which was not much of a process. They cheated their way through the North Dakota regulatory system and the South Dakota regulatory system and pulled a bunch of quick deals, and they got this pipeline in. So, you know, it's barreling towards the Missouri River. And it's barreling towards Standing Rock, and nobody bothered to ask Standing Rock, pretty much, and that's not working out well. So that's where we got to, and so now uh, there's, I don't know, there's about 4,000 people out there when I left a couple days ago. Any of you, were any of you out there? You go out there? Yeah, it's nice. It's, it's kind of like Lakota Woodstock or something, isn't it? I swear to God, you know, it's like whole, old home week. There's like all this great food. There's like, you know, people donating cool stuff. Thanks, y'all. I got a couple nice shirts out of it. You know, it's like amazing, such good spirits and such good mood, and people are really, you know, feel strong and committed, and, and uh, you know, but today I, I don't think that there was, uh, I didn't hear that there was any more arrests. It's, uh, it's not, you know, it's not good in terms of how the police are. The National Guard was out there when I left. Um, you know, so they're, they're rolling in a lot of artillery. And, uh, and there's, so that fight is very active, but there, was, there has been news in that uh, there have been now, I believe, three federal agencies that have tried, put at least right. a temporary pause on, on construction and permitting. Is that right? That, that is right. So, you know, what has happened is, is that the Standing Rock tribe has tried, you know, really hard through the federal court system. And, and I don't, I don't want to tell you that I think that there are some problems with the system. That's just my feeling at this point. That's crazy. What? How could... That's why I was interested in a theater of public policy, because I feel like it's all a theater out there in public policy. It's almost like we planned it that way. Oh, my gosh. You know, it's like totally crazy out there, because I went to, you know, I go to hearing after hearing, and it seems like I don't hear you. So anyway, so there I was, uh, you know, we're looking at it, and, and the court ruled against the tribe. You know, in, in, um, on Friday and 20 minutes later, the Obama administration, three agencies come out with a, with a statement being uh, Army Corps of Engineers, Interior, and Department of Justice that asks the company to put a hold on it, kind of just asking and says they're not going to issue a permit to go under the river. Saved us in that not going under the river, but it's a voluntary stop by the company. Nothing has actually stopped them fully. So and, did they, they, and they said that they were, and the, and the government said that they were going to review all the permits that they had already issued. I was like, great. So Let's the just voluntary do that. Just do that now. is like, oh, please, uh, company, if you don't mind, uh, go yeah. somewhere else, uh, pipeline uh, this way and that. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I if think it was mind. like an attempt to defuse it because they were super worried that there was going to be like something really bad go on yeah. on Saturday, especially since North Dakota had behaved so badly the week before. Yeah, you know the the dogs thing was not a good thing. Well, and I want to uh, let's I want to talk more about the specifics of what's happening there, but just to sort of back so up. So y'all y'all got this right? The basic story here, Cliff's notes to what's going on in that one place. Yeah. Well, and I I wanted to back up just a half step to the prologue, which is the the uh, why the pipelines are so problematic in the first place, and they go across a lot of tribal land and the environmental impact of a lot of them, because we've had people on the show before who, uh, you know, argue in favor of pipelines being necessarily safer than rail uh, tanker trucks in order to move oil across places. So 
I'm guessing you don't agree with that. Um, but I, I, I just feel like saying, does anybody ever ask WTF? What the hell are we doing? That's what WTF stands for. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> I mean, but... <laughs> I don't know who's watching my mother, but me watching, and she doesn't like it when I swear. You know, but, I mean, that's, the reality is, is that, you know, what happened is, is that because of American politics, you know, where's the largest oil reserves in the world? Anybody know? Venezuela. Mm. Interesting. Which country doesn't like Venezuela? Oh, yeah, that's us, right? You know, spent a lot of time, didn't like that shoe on the, you know, at the UN thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. you know, it's just kind of like kind of a bad rap. Spent all this time trying to do that. So anyway, rather than buying oil from Venezuela, they replumbed North America's energy infrastructure, came up with this energy independence thing so we wouldn't get oil from other places that we still get oil from. And they, you know, started trying to squeeze the tar sands and squeeze the fracked oil. This is called extreme extraction. This is when you're at the bottom of the barrel when you put 600 chemicals in um, and hope that what goes down in the aquifer is not going to come up. Like, what kind of idiot does stuff like that? You know, Halliburton. Or, you know, so that's what's going on. And so you've got, you've got something that shouldn't be happening. You know, what I want is a graceful exit out of the petroleum era. See, and I've, he- I've heard you say that. Yeah. You know, and this, this isn't graceful. And all I'm saying is that now we're trying to accommodate that with a bunch of pipelines. Right now it's from nowhere, but, you know, because there's like an 85% drop in drilling rigs in the Bakken. So, you know, pipeline from nowhere. But aside from that, the question I have to ask is like, you know, my position is, is I'm looking at pipeline, pipes sitting in northern Minnesota. If any of you have been up there, there's piles of pipes by Lake George. There's piles of pipes set up there. And then there's all those pipes they want to put it out there. I'm saying, send the pipes to Flint. Send the pipes to somebody who wants pipes. We don't want them. You know, that's what I think. So we, we need to think about what we're doing for energy infrastructure. We need to build infrastructure for people, not for oil companies. We need to not accommodate dirty oil, and we need to transition because, you know, I want to drive a car that's 65% efficient, not 16% efficient. And that's what a combustion engine is, is 16% efficient. And so efficient. that was what I was going to ask you to talk maybe a little more about it because I've heard you say that in a couple places about the elegant transition out of yeah. uh, in oil. So uh, more efficiency, what else does that look like? I mean, when well, you thought I mean, about it's, it. It starts with efficiency. I mean, I don't want to go back to my, like, I want a Tesla wine. You know, but the fact is, is that, you know, a combustion engine is 16% efficient. So go figure what kind of enlightened society drags that much metal around for 16% efficiency. Us. Right? That's dumb. That's dumb stuff. An electric, electric car is 65% efficient. Right? So what do you want to be driving in the future? Probably the electric. Right? So, you know, how you transition to that is, is where we, is where we got to go now. And then you got to quit moving stuff around. I mean, I'm like the rest of you. I spent my whole life in the fossil fuel era, but you relocalize. You use your, inter, you know, your internet to, you know, things like that. But I'm saying you get local food. You get local energy. You quit, you know, importing everything from everywhere else. And we just, like, chill out a little bit, you know? That's <laughs> <laughs> my strategy. <laughs> chill out, y'all. I mean, you, you know what I'm saying? Is Do you have like, a bumper sticker that says that? Because that would sell great. That would be, <laughs> chill out, y'all. Uh, I love it. Uh, so uh, the, there's a part of this I wanted to ask, because uh, I, I also heard you talk uh, in some of the research I did about that there's a lot of people, and not suggesting that it's anybody here, who can uh, talk about some of this stuff, but then there's sometimes a disconnect between intellectually thinking about, yeah, we need to move off of fossil fuels, and then actually taking some of the steps that that requires so uh, what does that look like then you know for those of us and those in well, the audience I mean, you know i make a lot of fun of north dakota which is going to get a lot of you know more mileage in the next while but you know at the same time you know you're looking at minnesota you've got these stu- 
stupid and bat, you know, ass words back. So whatever, you know. Ass words back. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, bat, bat, it's like a combination of bat shit crazy and ass backwards. Yeah, uh, I mean, bat whatever. shit backwards. Yeah, um, right, exactly. Like, what is it with it? Like, it's draconian policies on renewable energy. You know, you're sitting here and, you, you know, I'm trying, I live up on the White Earth Reservation. Y'all know that. And like, you know, you freeze in the winter, you know, and I got, I have wood. I'm trying to like do with all the cool thing, but my tribe's spending like, you know, millions of dollars on electricity to heat houses in the north that are inefficient. And, you know, we're paying these companies and we can't get, you know, solar online that's more than enough for your house. I mean, the whole net metering issue, what I'm saying is that you got policy you know, problems in the state of Minnesota that need to be overcome in a real way so that everybody could have a solar thermal, could have solar on their roof. You could have more community, you know, solar gardens, more wind, you know, and, and not move stuff around. I mean, there's a lot of ways you do that, but it, you actually got to just quit talking about it and just do it. Now, my hope is that the tribes are going to do a lot more because, like, um, you know, I have to say that Red Lake, they, they you know, end up with a settlement from Enbridge for $18 million, and then they announce that they're going to go 100% solar. I'm like, Wow. Wow, there you go. I mean, someone else should do that. You know what I'm saying? This is like, you know, the tribes are, are, of course, in my opinion, the most enlightened political entities in the state of Minnesota. That's quite obvious. Um, but y'all should catch up, you know? Catch your guys up. Don't let them sit around and be lame. You know? So, what is, so that, uh, the more solar and, and investing more in energy infrastructure, I guess there's a question, and a lot of times this is how I end shows, but since we're talking about it, what do we do? Like, what, what is it sort of individual people should be doing on some of this stuff well you got to move your institutions to buy local you know you got to move your institutions to buy local for energy and buy local for food you know that is one thing because you got to reboot this whole local economy because right now I'm, a, I'm an economist by training but y'all know what happens is like you know we're shipping everything you know we're buying everything from china you got to ship it across you're buying everything from someplace else we're buying energy and flooding people in northern manitoba and calling it green you know or coal out of north dakota i mean it's all backwards stuff you need to relocalize and get efficient. You know, and that's what an enlightened society does. And this is something and, that... You know, we do it in our households and we do it in our... In, it's not just shopping green. It's like acting it. You know what I mean? And, and then reducing what you consume. You know, because it's like... I mean, you all know. You don't need a lecture on this, I'm hoping. You know, because that'd be a, different, a whole different show. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll find out how the first half goes. But because um, one of the things that I actually found... I... Uh, I I, uh, I heard you talk a little bit about um, how some of this does show up uh, in tribal nations and on reservations that they also sort of uh, suffer from some of that same where, you know, I think I, I saw in one of your talks that you talked about uh, they spend $8 million on food, but $7 million of that is spent outside the reservation and whatnot because we've built systems that are that way. So... Uh, how do you, how do we start to change? I mean, there's individual things in terms of changing that, but uh, how? Well, I mean, yeah. I'm I'm working for the Mille Lacs Band right now on a local food system. I mean, you know, so basically what happens on my reservation, and it happens at a lot of other places, a microcosm is that you know you're you're shopping off reservation. So you know we have a 36 by 36 mile territory, and there's no retail infrastructure, and there's not enough food that is grown or produced or sold on the reservation. And so I want to reboot the local. You know, because y'all know that when y'all came here, none of you were dragging land with you, and most of the food was from us, right? You know, and so we just want to get I back to I wish there was that. somebody in the audience who like, what? Why? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying is, it's like, we got this. You know, we just need to restore our food economy, and we need a little bit of control. We need to get the Monsantos off my res, and, 
You know, I mean, there's a bunch of pieces like that. But what I'm saying is that so tribes are looking at this, and there's a whole move in tribal communities. And I have to say, in some ways, I mean, you guys got a lot of local farmers markets and things growing here. Keep nurturing that. And then I'm just trying to build it in my own tribal communities. And, uh, I mean, can you tell us a little more about uh, how that kind of looks different than maybe it had? Do you feel like there's been progress, particularly in that tribal um, governance space, that, that they're making progress on some of these things that you're talking about, the people that you've worked with? Does it look different than it did when you started doing this work 30 years ago? Yeah, I mean, it does look different. I mean, our, our health statistics are worse so years, you know. I mean, ours are now, you know, a third of our people have diabetes. You know, you figure out the uh, physical, the economic, and the emotional toll of that on a community. It's pretty high. You know, we have a lot of other health effects, you know, related to, you know, forced food transition. And so people are looking at it and they're saying, well, you know, we could just, you know, keep buying dialysis centers or we could just reclaim control of our food system. You know, so it's a totally different, it's much more, it's closer the level of accountability. You know, in my community, you know, you know my tribal rep's name is Umzi. You know, and he was the garbage man. You know, so what I'm saying is, is that, you know, in our community, the accountability is closer. It has to be then, you know, your guys get up there, whatever, who those guys are and gals. And, you know, they just kind of, they don't even listen, seems like half of them, you know, that's for sure. Um, but, you know, so I, I see that there's transition out of necessity. And I think also, um, you know, because the thing is, is that we are seeing the way things are going. And the more that corporations control our food, um, you know, it's a, it's a right. Your food's a basic right. So is your water, you know, and you cannot let them control it all. And uh, we've seen the consequences of it. And so we're, we're done. You know, we're done. And so to circle back to the the protest that's happening around the Dakota Access Pipeline, uh, we were talking a little bit about this before the show, but that is something that is sort of – it's hard to imagine that kind of coming together happening uh, in a different time because you've had people posting on uh, social media and doing live stream videos, and then you end up with a, a student in Laos asking the president of the United States a question about something that's happening in the Dakotas. Uh, and that kind of interconnectivity, it just is hard to imagine happening 10, 20, 30 years ago, how does that change then the way that these uh, movements happen, the work that you do? Well, I think, I mean, the Native community is, is really, you know, because a lot of us are remote. The press never covers Indians. I don't know if you ever noticed this, unless like it's an Indian in handcuffs, pretty much. You know, you got to do something pretty dramatic to get in the paper if you're a Native person, you know. And so, you know, we have our own media and our own communication systems. And, and I have to say, like, you know, that, that social media has really helped our, our geographic isolation is eliminated to a large extent by the social media ability of, of tribal people and other people, you know. And, and you can now, I mean, everybody knows it's the same thing across the board. It's like, you know, you can live stream your stuff. You know, so that, that has changed. And I, you know, I'm a little bit behind. You know, I'm just trying to get all that stuff. Like, I don't really know how to do some of that stuff, but I know that, you know, it's, it's, it's changing it. And I think that, you know, we were saying what was going on, and then when Amy Goodman, did you guys see that Amy Goodman said? Yeah. And everybody was using her footage, and you all see how that they're charging her with trespass? We should say uh, Amy Goodman, host of Democracy uh, Now! Democracy Now! now. Yeah. Democracy Now! is out there, and, you know, I was visiting with her earlier in the day, and then that, you know, that happened, and they, they started plowing there, and, uh, you know, with those bulldozers, and she went up there, and, um, yeah, so she's being charged with uh, trespassing by... Uh, the state of North Dakota, and there's an arrest warrant out for her. Apparently no knowledge of the freedom of the press 
thing in North Dakota or, or you know, also this question I kind of had is like, can a security um, company waterboard you? I mean, is there any regulation on what a security company could do in North Dakota? The questions we might want to ask civil society. So I think that the times have changed. There's a lot more visual on it. I think the Black Lives Movement also has, has you know, educated people as to the racial disparities and like how you're treated, what white privilege looks like with the cops and what you know, white privilege doesn't look like, in, you know, looks like in North Dakota, which is what's going on. And I, I, and I think that you know, um, you know, things have changed, but I'm really hoping this puts a spotlight not just on, you know, it's not just about the pipeline. Standing Rock has had a lot of bad stuff happen to them for 100 years. You know, a woman froze to death a few, uh, a few years ago you know, couldn't pay her propane bill. Her name was Debbie Dogskin. And I'm like, so how's that pipeline going to solve her problem? You know what I'm saying? I think it brings this, this picture on it and also to the racial justice issues. So I see it like as this way to open up and, and I cannot explain, you know, I'm a pretty busy girl and I, had, I wasn't on my schedule, you know, to spend all this time. And um, Patrick in the back there, is, uh, he's been out there quite a bit. He's, he's working with me and he's uh, got our table out there. But, you know, with, you know, it's, it's changing the face of, of the politic, I think. And so, uh, and this, and again, we're going to open it up to everybody in the second half of the show to ask questions. Uh, I guess part of it is it, there's this stuff that's happening that seems to be good, that there's more attention on this. And on the flip side of that, you still have some of these problems that I imagine for you are even much more frustrating than it seems like to us because it's like I've been doing like the same and they're still not listening and whatnot. So do you feel like this is the I don't know, the, there was that campaign a few years ago. It gets better. Does it feel like it's getting better, that things are moving in a good direction, uh, that there's there's somewhere that we're going towards? Or does yeah, it I feel mean, like it's I'm, just hitting I mean, against the wall? You know, wow. Yeah, I got angry. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I mean, I feel like that, you know, I've been, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've been at this for a long time. You know for sure, and I and I seen different times. But you know what I know is like you know I'm I'm like all you. At first, you know I I didn't I don't really oppose pipelines. Let me be honest. You know I like water and sewer. Those are cool. You know what I mean? It's like I didn't really think about pipelines. You know, and now I'm sitting there in this in this basically this state with all this water and basically a ticking time bomb of 50 year old pipelines across the north that go over to the Straits of Mackinac. And I'm wondering, well, that's not a good idea. You know things and and you know it seems like a pipeline break a week now. You know, in North America, because our infrastructure, we have a D in infrastructure. And so nobody paid attention to that because it was out of sight and out of mind. But, you know, you have a D in infrastructure when your bridge collapses. You know, and that's what we got. So we need to put these people to work fixing infrastructure in this country. And, and you know, so I, I think that, you know, you know, I've been hammering on this. I went to, like, every damn PUC meeting, I swear to God, for four years. You know, don't think they listened at all. You know, really just, just totally, you know, you know just dis disappointing you know, their whole, their whole um, thinking, you know. But beyond that, I think that this kind of like, everybody had this one plan and this, every, every, the Indians were going to fit into this little box and we were going to screw them one more time and then this <laughs> happened in North Dakota and they said, oh, shit, you know, pretty much, you know. And I told Enbridge, I meet with Enbridge and I told him, I said, um, you know, I said, hey, how's it going in North Dakota? <laughs> you know, they bought one-third of that pipeline and they were like, I said, they said, uh, they, I call this lady the Indian listener. They send her to talk to me. <laughs> they had this they, well they said they had these people called the in, we call them the Indian whispers they're called the tribal relations specialists so they, we burned out two of them already the Indian <laughs> the Indian whispers we did a little video on it but anyway so now they sent me the Indian listener 
so I was in this meeting with the Indian listener. I said, so how's it, um, you know, how's it going out there? And she said, well, how's it out there? Are there a lot of people? <laughs> I said, yeah. And she said, uh, and uh, what's your projections? I said, there'll be more. <laughs> and she said, uh, they were like kind of looking down. And then these two, uh, is our, one of our lawyers and this other, you know, a couple of beautiful young Indian women came in. They've been camping out for a week. They're like all fuzzy braids and everything, you know, they come into this meeting with those guys and their like, eyes just got big. And I said, that's just the beginning, you know, and I said, and if you try to put a pipeline up in northern Minnesota on that new route, it's going to look just the same because we know how to camp. <laughs> you know, it's not going nowhere, you know. On that note, ladies and gentlemen, uh, please, a big round of applause. Uh, Miss uh, Winona Lagoon. How's that? You caught my attention, so hello. So, yes. Do you have any ideas how we as a nation can escape the tentacles of China and how it just has a hold on us in every which direction. The tentacles of China. Okay. Yeah, so I'm, just, I'm just making sure I have the metaphor correct. Uh, it's good. I think of tentacles mostly with octopi, which I associate with Italian cooking. But no, China too. Right, that's good. Um, for, first, did anybody notice my wardrobe change? Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Since our t-shirts, we have them back. I always wanted to do a wardrobe change like my whole life and get back on. I'm yeah. So I was like, wow, I get to do that this one time. Okay. So good. Uh, I don't have any more additional wardrobes, so this will be it. Okay. I think that we have a tentacles of multinational corporations. I don't think it's just China. I mean, it's like China Inc. It's like Exxon Inc. It's like Walmart Inc. You know, so I feel like the antidote to globalization is relocalization. That's the antidote. And, and also kind of figuring out, I mean, it's this whole issue of, you know, I don't want to get into my whole thing on it, but it's like uh, money can't buy you love and buying more shit doesn't change your quality of life. You know, it turns out you could be super unhappy and have a lot of junk, which is like 90% of America, right? So let's, let's just like think about, you know, what is quality of life and, and stop, you know, reducing things and, and then go back to, you know, you need some union labor. You need to make it in America. You need to not buy like endless stuff here. But you know what I'm saying? So that's what I think is there's a lot of answers to that. I agree. You know, China is, but they're just one piece of the, you know, of the, of the beast, as it were. So okay. Uh, question. Other questions? If you have a question, raise your hand and I will raise. Okay. So right up here. Yes. I thought there was a hand up there. So in your last response, you kind of mentioned relocalization and throughout the program tonight, I've noticed you say that, and it usually has the theme of community being a part of it. Being in Minneapolis, we have less of a community culture and much more of an individualistic culture. What do you think we can do to kind of bring back that community and working towards more environmental efforts in Minneapolis? I'm not sure I actually heard that. Sure. So. A theme in the program tonight was about community is in a lot of these relocalization efforts. Minneapolis is a pretty individualistic kind of culture. What can we do to bring back more of a community while we're working on environmental efforts? You know, I think that there's a lot to be done in Minneapolis. I actually think of Minneapolis, I mean, you know, I'm, 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 you know I, I go a lot of places. Minneapolis is, is, you know, doing pretty good. You know, it needs to do a lot more in terms of you know, social consciousness. You know, I just think th that the more you buy, and it's not just buying, the more you localize your relations, the more accountable you are to each other. 
And to me, like, I'm a small town person. I was always raised in small towns. I lived, like, in the woods. And I know, like, all my stores. Like, I know, like, they come in and they say, hey, Winona, what, you know? So I like that set of relations. And I think that, you know, rebuilding all of those, you know, in, in all arenas, not just the local economy, but, you know, making our politics accountable here and then accountable to the broader state. The other thing I have to be honest is that you are kind of a bubble down here. Like, I'm, like, up north. You know what I'm saying? All this stuff happens down here, and there's a lot of cool stuff, and then there's a lot of crazy stuff, and then they just kind of expect we'll just like all think that's cool up north. And, uh, you know, I, I think that also an, an interaction throughout the state is important. You know, the tribal community, like I ask all you, y'all look pretty intelligent, but, you know, most people couldn't name the 11 reservations in the state of Minnesota. You know, I mean, I, I talked with some pretty smart people, and they don't know the difference between Dakotas and Ojibwe's. And I'm like, know, know a little bit more history and, you know, let's, let's, you know, being multiracial and as well knowing your native people and know, know you know, re relate to us. Not just, y'all go to the casino, I'm sure that's cool, but there's a lot of other things to do. You know, and that one guy, you got to buy local rice, that'd be wild. You know? So, you know, support those things and make it, you know, accountable like that, I think. A little bit of my answer. This guy looks scary. Scary question. No, no, no. I want to thank you for your posts. You, you keep people informed, at least people on Facebook, as to what's going on in, in North Dakota. And I thank you very much for those things. You've done great service. You mentioned the PUC as, as well as an elegant transition to what I would call a post-carbon energy society. So you went to, uh, this is really inside baseball. I started to, have to ask another totally obscure question. But you went to every PUC meeting. As I understood it, there were more applications for solar-powered farms in Minnesota than the PUC permitted, and that just totally perplexed me. Oh, that would and make perfect why, sense. Why wasn't every one approved and, and, and applauded? Can I, you, 30 yeah. seconds? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think Enbridge, you know, I mean, it, I think it, there's a term that's called regulatory capture, which is the oil companies control your politics, your regulatory mechanisms, and, you know, slather a lot of money and influence around these states. You know, these politicians are you know, uh, have been led a lot to believe that this is the only way and that economic development happens in that way. Minnesota should not be like, you know, I consider this to be a state with some history, long social history of movements, long history of renewable energy. The Public Utilities Commission should be approving solar energy. You know, the Public Utilities Commission should be approving energy generated by the people that is local, you know, that is accountable and should not be approving pipelines coming from Canadian oil companies. You know, it's, it's just a crazy thing, the way they are set up, you know. And, and I'm sure, um, you know, th the whole process was really, really, uh, was enlightening and discouraging to see, you know. The f when they finally came through, like, the 15th time and they wanted us to come out and testify again, I said, I said to the Public Utilities Commission lady, I said, I'm not going to bring my people out here to cry again in front of you. You didn't hear them the first three times they did that. You know, you know don't humiliate us again by having us beg that you should leave us alone. It's ridiculous. You know, they, they need to be doing the right thing. And, these, you know, the state needs to be accountable and not quit doing this to our communities in the north and not keep doing it, period. You know, we need to move past it. So, Can you talk a little bit more about this uh, idea of regulatory capture and how you've seen that show up in some of the work that you do and, and fighting against some of these projects? What, I mean, I think that we all have an idea of what, not exactly, well, sort of a corruption, but, I mean, how does that actually play out? Like, what does it look like on the ground? Okay, so North Dakota's like a prime, you know, y'all got to start paying more attention to North Dakota. I think we got to, you know, shame them into something like some kind of enlightenment. I'm not sure. 
But you know, North Dakota. That, as the son of a Lutheran minister, that's basically how I was raised. It's you go, you go. Shamed that, into enlightenment. That is right. You, you, you need to work those Lutherans out there, buddy. There's a lot of Lutherans in North Dakota. You know, they need to get out. Um, you know, so you, you, you're watching stuff in like Enbridge is called the North Dakota Pipeline Company. It, its charter was approved in North Dakota the day before the Public Utilities Commission of North Dakota approved their status as a public utility. Wait, wait, how's that work? Did y'all hear that? It was like the day before they got their charter out of Delaware, right? Which is, I don't know what happens in Delaware, but a lot of stuff, right? Everybody seems to go party in Delaware, get their corporate charters out of Delaware, you know? their money off, you know what I'm saying? It's like, that's like a perfect example of all that stuff. So that's kind of like bizarre. Like no one checked that they didn't have a charter when they applied. You know what I'm saying? Like little stuff like that, right? North Dakota passes this thing. I went and testified at the hearing. It's like, you know, that's the other thing I always like is these public utilities commission hearings that are super important are like held January 3rd in Crookston. You know what I'm saying? I like skated across minus 20 to go show up there and get hated on by the PUC. You know, so I show up and they're like, ah, oh, her again, you know? I go up there, but, you know, I did the same thing in North Dakota. I show up by some fluke. They had these hearings in North Dakota on these things called T-norm. That sounds cool, huh? T-norm, technically enhanced, naturally occurring radioactive materials. Y'all get that? T-norm, technically enhanced, naturally occurring radioactive materials. You're like, WTF, what the hell's that? Right? That's uh, fracking socks and radioactive discharge from, you know, from the fracking industry. And so what they did in North Dakota is that they legalized dumping that into municipal dumps. So you let me know when the radiation standards changed, when it became safer to increase your exposure by you know, 50 to 100 times. You know what I'm saying? That's what regulatory capture looks like, is when, is when the agencies entirely look the other way and they, you know, the oil companies say that they're doing some new tests and it's just kind of like, you know, I remember the, the testimony from one of them. It's kind of like, just look over there and it's like Al at the bar in Cheers. That's what she said. That's what, that's what that radiation is. It's kind of just like Al in the bar at Cheers. I said, are you high? You know what I'm saying? Th that's, I mean, that's the process, is that they, they set it up so you can't go to the hearing. They don't let you know. It's like a little small box. They don't tell you where it is. Poorly timed. Then they, you know, like ramrod it through this process, and they're already set up, you know? Minnesota, you know, the same thing with the whole PUC process. They didn't talk to the tribes the whole way through. We go in there to, you know, 15th hearing to testify, and they say you can talk for two minutes, you know? They already had their plan. So it's, you know, in the state of Minnesota, in the state of North Dakota, the oil companies have done pretty well, and we need to, you know, we need to move on. Hi. Hi. My daughter was out there over the weekend. I'm very proud of her. Why do you think Standing Rock was such a lightning rod for, her description was, all the tribes to really unite behind this cause, and it sounded like it was just amazing. You know, I think in, in one part, I think it's because nobody really saw, you know, what was happening out there. And, the, you know, we, we beat the KXL, right? The Keystone Pipeline, right? And then up here, you know, the, the, you know, the Sandpiper. That was a hard-fought battle. You know, we are not done because they still want to shove line three through the same route. So you guys stay alert. Don't let them do that. You know, but, you know, so we fought them so hard. I, somebody told me we cost them at least $600 million. I was like, thank you. <laughs> you know, you know, so then that happened. You know, it was happening back there, but it was kind of like on the side and nobody was paying attention because nobody pays attention to North Dakota. 
right? And then all of a sudden it went, you know, it went down and, and um, you know, our organization, Honored Earth, had been out there working for about five months with that group on there and nobody come and then they said, you know, come on out now because they're about to drill, you know, and then people said, we're going, you know, and then it kind of caught on and it's, you know, it's really something else. And like people, I felt like a, as a switchboard for Standing Rock, you know, they're like, who do I talk to? How do I get by the roadblock? I have like so many messages on my, you know, and, and I know that North Dakota's travel is booming. I heard the funniest damn story, this African-American woman from Philly, she said, well, I drove out once and then I flew out the next time to Bismarck. And do you know, I mean, you guys got any idea how many African-American people usually fly into Bismarck? <laughs> like none. You know what I'm saying? It's like none, you know? I mean, I've, I'm out there a lot and I'm like always looking for the fellow people of color. I'm like, hey, how's it going, man? You know, because it's, it's like none. And she said the whole plane was full of people of color coming out there and they all were going to that thing, you know? So we booming, booming travel industry out there. The Bakken is in decline, but the travel industry to go see the people at Standing Rock. I think what means something, you know, and the fact is, is that we all know, you know, one of the greatest political visionaries in, 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 in world history was Sitting Bull and he came from Standing Rock. He was assassinated by the Indian police, you know, that was brought in by the, you know, by the government. You know, it was so interesting that on this battle, the tribal chairman of Standing Rock was arrested by the state police. So it's like, you know, you still arrest tribal leaders out there in North Dakota, you know. And in he, his case, he was, a, you know, and, and he said some, a lot of really brilliant things. You know, he's the one who did the, the political strategy around fighting off Custer, you know, in the Little Bighorn battle. He was an excellent military strategist. And, and, you know, one of his greatest quotes is, let us put our minds together to see what kind of future we can make for our children. And that's this moment. You know, let us put our minds together to see what kind of future we can make for these children. So from my perspective, it's the convergence and this moment of clarity and the call out from that community. And then, uh, you know, you were out there. Besides that, it's just beautiful. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's good out there. It's super, it's really, really beautiful. Okay, we have, I, we have a mic I'll, I'll slow my did. responses. Uh, oh my gosh, so I'm gonna go right here in the front. Yeah. So I don't want to take away from the, the question of, of um, people of color and the, the history of oppression in the country, but I want to ask you how you see classism and um, financial inequality as playing into this as well, because there are a lot of people who are voting to enable the corporatist policy today who don't even realize it's not their self-interest. So that enlightenment that you're talking about, how do you think we bring that about and the, the financial divide as, as a part of that? Well, you know, I mean, you just start with, like, the, inf the infrastructure question. You know, uh, Flint would be okay if it had infrastructure. You know what I'm saying? The people who are most lacking in infrastructure are, are usually, you know, communities of color, but are also people who, you know, are economically not doing well off. You know, and, um, you know, in, in, a, in a lot of these questions, and, and every winter here in Minnesota, you know, a lot of people have to get fuel assistance. You know, because it, it's, it's cold here. And what we really need is solar thermal panels on those people's houses. What we need is heating that works for people because that, you know, that, that fuel assistance, LIHEAP is called Low Income Energy As Heating and Energy Assistance Program. That's basically just a transfer to oil companies every year by the federal government. Transfers money directly to oil companies. To, you know, so Cenex, all these guys are getting my heating check to make sure that, you know, so it's systemically nothing changes. You know, and to me, you know, this is the opportunity. We got to change this stuff up because you, you can't continue. You know, corporate welfare is not working out for us. You know, and that's what you got. You got, you know, totally corporate welfare, and and it affects all all people. But you know, people income, it is really you know based on that as well for sure. You know. Okay, uh, maybe one more. 
Hi, this is a, uh, a little off the topic we've discussed tonight, but since you're here, I wanted to ask how the um, repurchasing of land is going for the white earth. I, I remember years ago, there you, I think you were heading up a movement to yes. repurchase former, former tribal land, I believe. Yeah, so uh, for many years, I directed the White Earth Land Recovery Project for 25 years. I uh, purchased about 1,400 acres of land, and on that land, grow traditional crops, have some cemeteries, have a former elementary school, a radio station. Good. Kind of holding solid in that. I actually resigned from running that to run the pipeline campaign, and uh, to be, you know, which is like not my favorite thing to do. You know, it's like fight pipelines. So, but, you know, I would really rather just work on, uh, you know, those other things. And so, you know, it is still going, and it is um, a lot of what we're doing now up there is a restoration of traditional varieties of corn, beans, squash, potatoes, melons, um, and uh, looking at a lot of solar energy. So White Earth Land Recovery Project is still, is still, going, um, is still going good. And Thank you for your question. And this is actually something I wanted to ask about. And it's really, uh, it's really touchy, I, uh, but I think about this a lot. You know, a lot of us probably have been at events or things like this where somebody will start by saying, you know, we're all on Indian land right now. And uh, I take that very seriously. But then I'm like, well, I don't know what to – I honestly, I'm like, I don't know what to do about that. Like, I, there's a part of me that thinks, like, should I go? Like, should I, uh, like, should I go back to – Germany? I'm not sure exactly uh, because, you know, we're, we're here now and so it's sort of this, you know, it's not helpful to just be guilty about it. So w what do we... I, yeah. I think guilt's kind of a useless emotion, actually. <laughs> you know, I mean, so, you know, what I, what I figure is, is like, we're all here and nobody's going anywhere, but what we need is some justice. So, you know, the urban Indian community of Minneapolis is not in good shape. You know, largely made refugees. We need to be first-class citizens, not third-class citizens. You know, you need to buy local, you need to buy native, you know, you need to support issues like environmental justice issues, you know, in our communities so we don't continue to be poisoned by, you know, other bad ideas that come in. You know, we need to work together on all of these issues. And then you also need to support, I mean, the fact is, is that the economy down here, this, this city and St. Paul was built off of our reservations. You know, the trees came off of my reservation. Frederick Weyerhaeuser clear-cut us to build, you know, Summit Avenue, all these places. And so, you know, it's like people look up and they're like, oh, really, you know, it looks tough up there. And I'm like, there's a reason. It's like how some people are made poor. And what we want is justice. So, you know, what I want is, is I, I want, you know, to be producing re renewable energy that is purchased down here. You know, because I have class four wind on my reservation. I want the food, to, I want to eat my own food and then I want to sell my surplus, you know, at a premium. And I want these stores to quit buying from California wild rice, and I want them to buy native harvested wild rice as a fair trade. You know? I want, you know, I want our businesses to be supported here. I want our people to be employed. I want people to quit looking at those Indians that are, you know, homeless on the street here, asking for money and ask how come they are. I want people to pay attention to the fact that native women are murdered and missing and have the highest rates of everything you don't want to have. And I, don't, I want to quit being invisible. I want justice for all of us. You know, because the fact is, you know, I mean, Nelson Mandela, those guys say a lot of things, but they say, you know, you, when you dehumanize someone, you too are dehumanized. You know, and we want to be human. You know, so to me, you know, there's a lot of things right here. And then also, you know, super privileged. Anyone in this room is super privileged. I, I got that. You know, we're all privileged. So be enlightened. You know, don't let them screw us in the north while you sit down here and say, wow, sucks to be Indian. You know? It, you know, the fact is, is that you guys, like, I, 
I come down to the legislature this last year and I was like, you know, I come in here and my blood pressure rises, you know? And that, we need to change that. And y'all need to be saying the things to the legislature so that I don't gotta come down, you know, and, and raise my blood pressure talking about this stuff. I'm like, you know, this is not 1889, this is not 1924 when you burned us out to build your places up there on Mille Lacs Lake. This is, you know, this is 2016. And I want to be treated like a first-class citizen. I want respect. I want justice. That's what I want. So, you know, there's a lot of ways to make justice, but make it. This is a, you know, you guys are not Bismarck, you know. This is Minneapolis. Do the right thing, you know. <laughs> City motto. <laughs> not Dopey Bismarck. Dopey Bismarck. <laughs> Okay, so last thing that I, I, I do want to ask you about, and I don't know whether this is a, a light way to end or not, uh, is that you were uh, the vice presidential candidate with uh, Ralph Nader twice, and I believe, if I read this correctly, you were a Bernie Sanders supporter uh, for a while. Right. Uh, so where, where are you now? Where are you these days? Uh, I was wishing Bernie was still in, man. <laughs> wishing Bernie was still in. You know, I mean, I'm not pleased. I wish Hillary would like, be enlightened and not be you know, pro-fracking. You know, of course I'm not going to vote for Trump. I mean, what kind of idiot votes for Trump? You know? I didn't. Sorry. I, sorry. I'm, no, I'm, just because I'm wearing this 1970s suit doesn't mean that I'm an old white Archie Bunker. But um, I just dressed the part. So uh, so not not Trump uh, and, you know, just I'm having, You know, I'm struggling. I'm struggling. Yeah. Okay? You know, I mean, that's, that's where I'm at. I'm a, you know, I'm a Sanders supporter. And, I, you know, what I'd really like is, like, there's a gubernatorial election in North Dakota and there's a national election. I'd like Hillary to come out and say, no, Dakota Access Pipeline. You know, that's what I'd really like. That would help my situation a lot, you know? And she, someone needs to have the courage to do that. Someone needs to have the courage and say, you don't get to run pipelines over Indian reservations without talking to them. And consultation doesn't mean getting to yes for a pipeline company. It means no. You know, it means no. And no, no has to mean no sometimes. So, you know, you need more courage, and I'm not sure that I'm, you know, I'm getting that out of, out of Hillary. So I'm like, you know, I'm having, a, I'm, I'm having a tough go on that one. Yeah, and so I, I guess the... how. How do we get more courage into the system? Like, is it, is y'all it do it. I mean, y'all do it. You're, you know, everybody wants to talk about their you know, right to their opinion about everything. Well, make, you know, be courageous and make that happen in the political system because it is ridiculous. I mean, and it's, you know, it's beyond that. It's, it's like what privilege looks like and then how it messes up the rest of the world. You know, and that's what's going on in Minnesota and everywhere else. There's a bunch of you know, people down there. They don't, you know... I mean, they don't even know who we are, where we live. You know, I go into some of these meetings and I'm like, this is what I look like. And you're trying to, you know, they don't even know. You know, that's like the little bubble of privilege they live in. And so, you know, we need to like really be accountable to each other. We need to be accountable to each other. And, you know, uh, treat each other decently. And, um, you know, that's, um, you know, that's the way it's going to be because it's not a, you know, to me, where we're at now is this opportunity. It's this, and it's it's our shot. You know, they didn't have rain in Syria for what six years, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. You know, we act like these things are going on because it's just like you know, not nice people over there. People are, you know, on a worldwide scale. Climate change is going to change everything, and it is right now. And uh, you know, this is our shot to not be stupid humans. This is our shot to to start changing things. But you got to change your policies. So. Ladies and gentlemen, on that amazing note, our shot, not be stupid. Look at it, ladies and gentlemen, Winona LaDuke.
Thank you for listening. Our show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to see us in person, you can find our schedule by going to www.t2p2.net or find us on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks.